I can prove that this kind of cognitive task and this output in terms of behavior can be created by neurons interacting. That's what an artificial neural network tells me. And that's reassuring. <laughs> that yeah, lowers yeah. my heart rate a bit. Using mathematical models and quantitative methods is like really important for understanding the brain. And um, the history of doing so has been long and complicated and probably spans more centuries than people realize. There's no like really correct mathematical equation for any you know problem in neuroscience. You know, people have whatever background they do, if they're coming from physics or something like that, they have a way that they see the world and a set of equations that they use as tools to understand uh, the world and they can see how those map onto the brain. This is Brain Inspired. When I say neuroscience these days, I think many, if not most, neuroscientists would almost assume that I mean computational neuroscience, because the computational approach has come to dominate much of the field. Um, and it's what we often discuss on the podcast. Computational neuroscience basically means using mathematical models to connect some cognitive function to brain activity. Uh, for example, reinforcement learning models uh, connect reward-related behavior to dopamine-related brain activity. And in this way, computational models serve as testable hypotheses or theories about brain functioning. And these kinds of models are responsible for much of the recent progress in neuroscience. Enter Grace Lindsay and her book, Models of the Mind, How Physics, Engineering, and Mathematics Have Shaped Our Understanding of the Brain. This is an awesome book that summarizes the major approaches that occupy the workdays of a vast number of neuroscientists these days. So each chapter focuses on a theme and relates the history of that theme, how it came to be, um, its conceptual underpinnings, and the modern landscape, what's going on now in neuroscience related to it. So it's a great broad introduction for lay people, and it's also a great summary for those already in the field uh, who are wanting to expand beyond their own expertise. Grace makes her bones, well, her academic bones, I guess, um, studying vision in brains by creating and testing deep learning networks. And she does this currently as a postdoc at the Gatsby Computational Neuroscience Unit at University College London. During this episode, we discuss a handful of topics uh, related to what she writes, like what's good and what's bad about using math for neuroscience, uh, the birth of AI and uh, the computational approach, some of the people involved there and some of the ideas, the neural code, using Shannon information to study brains, graph theory and network neuroscience and relating structure to function, grand unified theories of the brain, and we touch on other topics as well. Show notes are at braininspired.co slash podcast slash 108. If you find this podcast is improving your world, you can improve my world and therefore improve the podcast by supporting it on Patreon for super cheap. It helps a ton. Uh, and you can join the Discord community that I've set up for uh, myself and other like-minded folks to discuss various things. Thank you, Patreon supporters. I am grateful for your kindness and appreciation. Here's Grace. Grace, welcome back. How you been? How's things? How, how's the how's the kid? Kid is good. Very cute. Learning to crawl. 
totally fun having a baby in a pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Not destroying your career, though? Having a child? You know, I think everyone's career was a little destroyed this year. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> not so that's bad. True. <laughs> that's true. Um, before we start talking about the book, uh, let's talk a little bit about your, your research. I just you know want to know what's going on. What, what did you think about last night laying down in bed, something that you don't know about what you're doing? What are you striving for? That Where's the edge of your knowledge end these days? Yeah, I've been feeling, um, and I guess this is been true for almost all of the history of neuroscience. But uh, the hard part for me to think about now is stuff that is in between sensory and motor. <laughs> so, <laughs> that tiny, that tiny amount that's in a between. little sliver that we still got to figure out. Um, no, I mean, obviously, you know, I, I've studied vision a lot. And um, even just the visual system, even the retina is actually very complicated, and we still don't fully understand it. But I feel like there's at least a sense that like, we got the basic gist of things, and we have the right kind of frameworks, and, you know, we can sort it out. And then on the motor control side, um, I don't study it directly, but I did uh, look into it for the book because there's a chapter on motor control there. And, you know, it's it's a tough thing. It's got its issues, but there are reasons to believe you can understand how neural activity controls muscles and therefore movement. Um, but yeah, when I really try to think about, like, do we even have the right frameworks for understanding how we have, you know, a coherent model of the world in our minds and how we use that to plan and all of those kinds of things? That's where I little, I go a little, you know, off the rails a bit in my mind. I can't, I can't really even grapple with the right way to ask those questions. Obviously, people study these things, um, but it just feels like, you know, the things that you can study in the lab uh, with methods that we have now, it, it feels like there's just still a lot there that where there's going to be whole new principles and frameworks that uh, we're not even talking about yet is my guess. And so that feels uncertain. I have that same sense. Um, and I don't know how much how well it meshes with with your sense of it. But from my perspective right now, I, I think it would be accompanied by a sense of dread were I doing active research, you know, asking a question and seeking to create an experiment that will, you know, the, uh, the, the right experiment to answer the question or the right model and et, et cetera. Right now, I feel, I'm filled with uh, joy because it's, there's so much to explore and, and learn to think that our fundamental frameworks could be uh, in peril, you know? Yeah, I see that perspective. I think there are, <laughs> there, are, <laughs> there are types of researchers that really like the big open, true. like uh, there, nobody knows what's happening here and I'm just going to take a step. And then there are some researchers that are like, oh, there's this little inch left to go and I really want to like put a button on this and get it done. And I think I fall somewhere in between. I want some sort of scaffolding and then I'll make kind of connections between established points. And really what kind of prompted me to to think about you know, the vast open space of cognition is just because in studying vision, I'm kind of always interested in like what the next step is. Like I was studying primary visual cortex and it's like, well, how is this information used, you know, in later visual areas and all of that. And now I'm kind of interested in how vision is used for cognition and action planning and that kind of thing. And it's like, ooh, I don't even know, like, is there enough scaffolding for me to right. jump to to that next step to connect the output of the visual system, so to speak, with the rest of the brain. Um, and yeah, so the the openness of it, you know, 
different levels of openness for different people is is what I would say. Well, you, so you're not filled with dread. So that's good. No, I would not call it dread. And some of it is like, maybe I just need to read more of the literature. <laughs> like maybe there's scaffolding out there and I just haven't found it yet. So Right. Oh, this is this actually directly um, relates to stuff we're going to talk about in your book. But I mean, it, it, do you see this as, um, I mean, not to harp on this, but it, do you feel like it's limiting your progress now? Or do you feel like you can kind of carry on uh, with these open questions and still make progress as as science tends to do anyway? Yeah, I feel like, yeah, I can still make progress. I mean, also, there's just plenty of kind of unresolved questions, even if we just focus on sensory systems or motor systems. So there's still stuff to be done for sure. And personally, my research uses artificial neural networks, which you can train to do whatever you want. And so at least in those networks, I can have some control over what they do and how they use visual information and study that. Uh, so that helps me because it grounds some of the behavior. Like, I can prove that you know, this kind of cognitive task and this output in terms of behavior can be created by neurons interacting. That's what an artificial neural network tells me. And that's reassuring. <laughs> that yeah, lowers yeah. my heart rate a bit. It's like, it is possible. <laughs> I'm not really understanding how that is happening. I'd like to know more, but I can at least be sure that it's possible. I mean, the brain technically proves that as well, but <laughs> just a lot more going on there. Whereas in the artificial neural networks, I can say pretty directly what's responsible for what. Yeah, that is uh, reassuring. Um, to me, you're, you've been ahead of the curve uh, two times here, uh, just within our conversation, regarding our conversation. One, with your child, uh, because it was pre, pre-pandemic. And I think you know, once more and more people get vaccinated, there's going to be like, there's going to be like a nine month, and it's going to be like after World War II, right? The baby boom, there's going to be like a little mini boom, right? Yeah, I I think it's already happening. I think some people were like, we're home, I guess let's do this now. <laughs> so <laughs> I think we're already seeing some quarantine babies. Well, as opposed to in the elevators. Yeah, quarantine <laughs> babies. Oh yeah. gosh, the quarantine boom. Yeah. That's a that's not something I would want to be part of that you know just the label <laughs> itself. But the other thing I think you're you're ahead of is the uh, book boom because everyone went home and wrote books and you were ahead of that as well. So congratulations for getting your book out well ahead of that. Thank you. Yes, I had to stay home by myself before it was legally mandated <laughs> <laughs> to write a book. I mean, do you agree so. though? It seems like everyone's writing books now. It's like oh, it this does. is a nice side effect. But I can't tell if it's um. At least for me, you know, there's that effect where like once you hear about something, you see it everywhere and it's like, okay, well, I wrote right. a book, so I'm really interested in like who else is writing books and what are books about and that kind of thing. But if you're right. saying it too, then then maybe it is a real effect. Overall positive experience writing a book? Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah. Better than blogging? Worse than blogging? Um, Better, one, because there's a possibility of making money. <laughs> and uh, But also I put more effort into it. Um, because it was going to be a real physical book and the pressure of yeah. that and working with a proper publisher and everything just really makes you want to do well. Um, but more difficult because you can't share it for so long until after you're actually kind of done with it. Whereas I'm so used to just being like, ah, here are my thoughts. Go, let's, you Publish. know, get response yeah. and everything. Yeah. So the waiting has been very strange. Hmm. Well, it's here now. How's the feedback? I love the book, by the way. Congratulations. I mean, the the, the work that you put into it really paid off. Uh, are you getting all sorts of uh, feedback? When, when are you going to give award speeches and stuff? 
<laughs> um, yeah, I've been getting some feedback. So it's out now in the UK and uh, in India, and you can get it in Europe as well. So it's it's got you know pretty good distribution already. So people have have read it and given me feedback. How's that feel? Just having it out in the world? It's weird because people will like send me pictures of themselves holding it, and it's like, oh my yeah. god! And it's also I don't. There's something about knowing that there are like multiple copies that is weird because in my mind it's like the book, like it's this one thing that was like on my computer for a long time, and now it's like there's just copies of it everywhere. Um, so no, it's it's really cool to have it out there, and obviously I I wrote it because I wanted people to read it because I think it's interesting stuff. So it's cool that people are reading it, and I hope that you know it. It provides interesting information for them, whether they're in the field or not. That was kind of my goal. So models of the mind. I'm going to read the subtitle here. How physics, engineering, and mathematics have shaped our understanding of the brain. Just super big picture. If you had to choose one thing, what, what would be the one thing that you would want people to take from the book? So thinking about kind of a general audience, like people outside of neuroscience, um, what I really want people to know is that using mathematical models and quantitative methods is like really important for understanding the brain. And um, the history of doing so has been long and complicated and probably spans more centuries than people realize. Um, and it kind of touches every part of the study of the brain. So for, yeah, for the general audience, it was like, this is the thing we do and it's really important and it's actually kind of cool. And you can understand, you know, the impact of mathematical modeling on the brain, despite the fact that you know, mathematics and the brain sound like scary topics to understand. Actually, when you put them together, they're almost easier to understand. <laughs> yeah, better together so, yeah. than math and the brain. Yeah, And then, yeah, and also I was, I did have in mind the fact that, you know, people in the field, I would want them to want to read it as well. And so providing the history and kind of the personal stories, I think, uh, at least for me doing the research for the book, it was really interesting to to learn about those and relate it to the present time and my stance as a researcher and all of that. Uh, we're, I'm going to give you a quiz in just a second here, so that'll be fun. But um, <laughs> before that, what, so obviously math is good for studying the brain, but you talk about, you know, there, so maybe maybe we can talk about what's good and what's bad about math uh, for studying the brain, because there are some downsides, right? Mm -hmm. Or at least one or two downsides. <laughs> so you kind of touched on what's, what's good uh, about uh, using math. I don't know if you want to expound on that, but then maybe also what is a, a potential downside to it? Yeah, so I think the good is that it forces um, researchers to be explicit in what they think is going on. So if we're thinking about kind of building mathematical models that are meant to replicate something you think is happening in the brain or with behavior, then when you write something down in math, like you can't be wishy-washy. It's not like, oh, yeah, this number is multiplied by that number, but maybe not sometimes. I don't know. You know, <laughs> like you have to just be very explicit in the model of what you think is going on. And I think people can think that their mental models that they have kind of in words are explicit and, oh, they could totally flesh yeah. it out easily, no problem. But I know from building mathematical models, you can think that. And then when you sit down to do it, it's like, oh, oh, no, there are huge, you know, chunks of data that we're missing here that make it impossible to to put these ideas into a model. Or I didn't actually know how these, you know, different variables interact in a way that I thought I don't know how this brain region is connected to that one or whatever it is. Um, so 
So building the models forces you to be explicit, which is very important. And then it's also a way to test your hypothesis. It makes you define it correctly, like in very clear terms. And then by running simulations or doing analysis, you can test if your hypothesis kind of works the way that, that you think it does. So I think that's definitely the good side. The bad side is that um, in order to condense a biological system to an equation, you got to get rid of a lot of stuff. Uh, you got to you got to throw a lot away, and uh, I would I'll, I'll even consider that slightly a positive though because it forces you to identify what you think is important. Um, yeah. But it does mean that you're ignoring details that could turn out to be important. And kind of once you've codified a concept in a mathematical model, it can be easy for like future generations to also ignore the details that you threw away, even though those details are relevant. So. It makes sense that as a first approximation, you have to throw away some details, but it can be, you know, detrimental if it sets the tone for a research trajectory. Um, and so I think that's one of the major downsides of using mathematical models is just it does it, it forces you to decide which details you think are irrelevant. And then you might kind of get caught in thinking that those details are irrelevant. Mm. So these days, do you think that... Um just including math in general, uh, whether it's good or bad math or pertains to good or bad ideas, do you think that lends credibility to someone's scientific ideas? I think it certainly does in like the popular press, like people looking in from the outside at a field. They might think that the mathematical mm. side of a field is the one that's doing something more rigorous. Um, I don't know if people... I mean, almost within neuroscience, you could argue that the opposite happens because some people are suspicious of, you know, people who build models, um, if only because they think that like, oh, you're not tied down by empirical data, like you're just going off and right. dreaming, <laughs> coming up with whatever you want. Um, so I, I, I think people do try to add equations and mathematics and do certain types of modeling especially around kind of data analysis. Like you think if you collected data, you're supposed to do like the fanciest new mathematical technique to try to understand it. And that might, you know, be motivated by a sense that you're being more rigorous if you do that. Um, when in fact, that's not necessarily the case. The same with any aspect of science, you can use mathematics well or poorly, and it can lead to sound conclusions or it can lead you astray. Uh, mm. So I, I would say that it's possible some people add math to seem more rigorous, and it's possible that from an outside perspective that works. But uh, for the most part, I like to think that in neuroscience, it's being used mostly appropriately. <laughs> in your chapter on rationality and, and uh, making rational decisions, where you talk about Bayes' theorem and the Bayesian approach to the brain, um, I believe it's in this chapter. You, you talk about uh, Hermann von Helmholtz, who you know is coming back around as kind of seen as a central historical figure with some great ideas early on, specifically um, the idea of unconscious inference, which is hugely popular right now in the uh, computational neuroscience world. But he didn't mathematically specify how it would happen. Do you think that had he done that, he would have been appreciated sooner rather than I mean, I, everything happens, you know, on oscillations, but do you think that would have um, uh, sped the celebration of of that, of unconscious inference ideas? Yeah. Yeah, I will say I do love Hemholtz, like researching him 
it seemed like he knew so much. And from what I could tell, he was also like a decent person, which is sometimes rare in historical figures. Oh, I didn't know. Yeah, yeah, I'd I'd like to read a biography on him. But um, yeah, so yeah, I mean, he was, he impacted a lot of things and, and is definitely appreciated for those things. But it is true that this particular idea of kind of the idea that when you perceive something, you almost have to reverse engineer the causes of it. And that kind of happens um, automatically. And you combine, you know, past information, you bring that to bear on how you interpret a scene. So these were ideas that he had and talked about, and he had the mathematical skill to you know, mathematize things because he applied it to other elements of like physiology and sensory processing um, in terms of like describing the sensory organs and things. Uh, But I don't know that having put an equation to that. So the equation we now use to to um, talk about that kind of thing is Bayes rule and Bayesian inference. Mm -hmm. I don't think that putting an equation to that would have necessarily helped in part because um, there's a sense that you can uh, quantify or mathematize something too early before you have enough data to really like fit a model or like make strong claims. Um, and so I don't know that at the time that he was working, if the type of experimental work that was being done would have been so well suited to, you know, doing that kind of analysis. Um, I think you do need you know, you need a certain amount of maturity in data collection and ideally some agreement on kind of what the basic tenets of a, a field or a question are before it's really worthwhile to get concrete with the mathematics. I mean, he was concerned with numbers. He measured the action potential velocity of all, you know, nerve conduction velocity, which was yeah. pretty awesome. I mean, there is a, was he one of the tragic suicides? Did he commit suicide? I don't think so. There's so many. <laughs> there there are a fair number, yes. I don't think he was one of them, but I could be wrong. All right, I'm going to have to look this up and yeah. edit. <laughs> but, <laughs> but yeah, he had so many uh, amazing ideas. So, okay, let's dive into the book here. Let's start with a quiz because uh, your book does a few things. That it um, does some work a few ways on someone's uh, mind, on my mind while I was reading it. Um, one of the things that it, it you've already mentioned, it really connects the history uh, of uh, science, both to the, you know, connects the history to present day um, and talks, you know, gives like a real, th- real threads um, through the mathematical and computational literature to these days. But in doing so, you also tell stories. Uh, and for some reason, I, I don't know why, why does it help uh, for us to know a little personal information about someone to to sort of solidify in our minds, even their science? It just helps to know Oh yeah, that guy liked to fly kites. That woman was a, you know, like a mountaineer, you know, or something like yeah. that. Why does that help? I think it's just because we are very agent-based in our understanding of the world. Like we'll assign agency to inanimate objects if they're like moving in a certain way. And so I think you want to it's easier to remember concepts if it was like, oh, there was this person who was fighting for this concept and this is, you know, what they were like. You want like a sense of there was a character and an agent that was doing a certain thing and then that'll help you, you know, uh, connected in a narrative way that is more memorable because there's like a temporal structure to it. Like this led to that, led to that, rather than just like a series of facts. Um, so I think, yeah, we're just as humans, you know, geared towards understanding agency in the world because it's usually pretty beneficial to understand the world that way. But it is, you said character, but it is a caricature basically of, you know, but it still helps. Okay, quiz time. Um, th- these are all facts from your book, so we'll see oh, how. No. <laughs> I told you I wrote. I finished writing this like a year ago. <laughs> Sorry, I know. Claude Shannon, 
developed a mathematical theory of blank. Information or communication? Well, yes. Okay, but sorry. So the uh, the non... Th- these are the story. Th- these are the personal things in their lives. Oh, oh. It's a... Juggling. Yeah, oh, yes. you got it. Okay. All right. <laughs> also, Claude Shannon invented a flame-powered... Oh, no. Bicycle? <laughs> Frisbee. Frisbee. Ah, uh, I see. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we Don't worry. We have a few more. Okay. Edgar Adrian uh, was known to uh, play with his students and enjoy this particular game. A game? No. Is it? Social game. Oh, he played hide and seek in the woods and valleys. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It really helps. I don't know. These things help for some (laughs) reason. Okay. There's no way you're going to get this one. How many drawings did Ramoni Cajal uh, make? It was something like 17 or 1900. I think. Oh, wow. There's a seven in there. Wow. You got it all. It's nine, uh, nine, 1,907. Oh, wow. So okay. You got all yeah. of those numbers. <laughs> uh, last last one here. What or who or how was B.F. Skinner introduced to Ivan Pavlov's uh, work on reinforcement learning? It was through an article in a popular magazine by, is it H.G. Wells? Is that who it was? <laughs> <laughs> wow. You performed quite well on this quiz. Any, uh, just to get back at me, any, anything you want to quiz me about? <laughs> I didn't write the book, so. <laughs> no, that's excuse. okay. I think it just shows that the small details are also what I remember best from the book. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, you know, you have, I think it's 12 chapters in the book and obviously we're not going to get through all of it, but I want to talk about some of the big, bigger ideas in the book. One of the things that you write about a book in the book is the sort of the birth uh, of AI and and kind of the computational approach to thinking about the brain and intelligence. Uh, so, and like all good researchers, you you uh, start with McCulloch and Pitts uh, at some point. So I'm going to just read a quote from your book here. Um, with this step in their research, and this is talking about McCulloch Pitts' early uh, logic gate conception of a neuron. With this step in the research, McCulloch and Pitts advanced the study of human thought and at the same time kicked it off its throne. The mind, quote unquote, lost its status as mysterious and ethereal once it was brought down to solid ground. That is, once its grand abilities were reduced to the firing of neurons. To adapt a quote from Letvin, the brain could be now thought of as a machine, meaty and miraculous, but still a machine. More broadly still, McCulloch's student, Michael Arbib, later remarked that the work, quote, killed dualism, end quote. Well, it's heavy stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so would, would, you, would you rather be McCulloch uh, Pitts, uh, like the theoretician, or would you rather be a Rosenblatt, the, the engineer? Oh, that's interesting. Um, I think, can I just be McCulloch in particular? <laughs> sure. Oh, yeah. You don't want... Pitts was a suicide, right? That's no, tr- well, it was, it was... Yeah, I mean, drank himself to death. Drank himself yeah. to death. Um, yeah, but also just Pitts was... His approach was much more kind of... Um, it seemed like the rigor really mattered to him. Like, you had to be getting things precise and mathematical, whereas McCulloch came more from both philosophy and physiology, and I come from philosophy and neuroscience. And then it was just kind of like, it would be useful if we could put this in math. I think there's a way to map this to math, and that could be helpful. And that's like kind of how I think about the use of math in neuroscience or biology more generally. So I think McCulloch particularly is where uh, where I would sit. You live longer too, so that's good. Mm-hmm. So you do, you tell the story of, you know, the, the birth of AI and um, you know, all the way up really to modern day, 
you know, along the way, you talk about the Minsky-Papert um, criticisms of the of Rosenblatt's perceptron. So they kind of famously brought on the first AI winter by uh, suggesting that multi-layered learning was impossible. Uh, they they didn't know they didn't see how you could uh, teach how a neural network could learn with more than one hidden layer in it, and this brought about the uh, AI winter. But it was really just their opinion, which was the crazy thing to think about, is it was their opinion that it couldn't be done. Do you think that there is a lesson to be learned, you know, in retrospect about <laughs> so much writing on people, on someone's opinion? I mean, they, they, you know, it's not, it's not just like they, they wrote a one-line, you know, opinion about this. They, they wrote an entire book that was filled with math and, you know, uh, solid reasoning, right? Um, and, and that was part of it. But do you think there's a lesson to be learned there? Yeah, so, yeah, I think the uh, kind of the canonical story is that the, you know, the most important thing they did in the book was prove that a single layer perceptron couldn't do certain important calculations like the XOR problem. And XOR. so that that was a mathematical proof that wasn't kind of their opinion on it. And then, but yeah, their stance towards multi-layer neural networks um, was negative. And so that you know, if they had concluded the book with, oh, a single layer couldn't do it, but we could definitely do it with multiple, and that's the way the field should go, that would probably have a, a different outcome um, oh, for yeah. the field. Um, so I think that, you know, proving that something doesn't work as well as you thought that it would is one of the important reasons that you should mathematize things um, so that you can say with um, some sort of clarity and confidence, you know, where the, the boundaries are on um, a model that you're working with. Um, with regards to, you know, their intuitions and their general negative attitude towards it, um, it's, I think it's tempting to say like, oh, yeah, that was silly. People shouldn't have just kind of trusted uh, their predictions. But when you're dealing with people who really took the time to study the, the single layer perceptron in such depth and with such mathematical analysis and that kind of thing, um, you know, people who were honestly interested in this and explored it, I mean, science is really based on the intuitions of, of experts, um, in terms of what to test next and just coming mm -hmm. up with hypotheses. It's, you can't, prove your hypothesis. That's the nature of it being a hypothesis. So we really do. Yeah. yeah. We rely on, you can't prove it a priori, at least we rely on, um, on, on scientific intuition to know how to guide things. Now, whether it needed to be a whole big defund AI, everything's terrible, you know, winter <laughs> situation. I mean, that's, that's a little dramatic, I guess. Um, but at the same time, the hype around the perceptron and AI at that time was also dramatic and overstated. So that was kind of a backlash to, to the hype. Um, and so that's just pointing to the, the tendency of scientists, like all people to kind of follow fads and get really into one thing only to throw it away for another thing the next day. And, I think fads in general in science are probably somewhat problematic. I can see arguments for why they might actually be useful. Um, but yeah, you know, the fads and the big swings up and down is um, perhaps what's more damaging than anything. Do you know if uh, Minsky, I'm sure he addressed, uh, because this is like the story told, you know, though the big first AI winter and Minsky Papert, do you know if he had thoughts about this in retrospect later in his life about whether he regretted that? Oh, yeah, I think there, I mean, there've been a lot of interviews with him and I think he has reflected on it, but I can't remember Probably. exactly what he said about it. Just whether, I'm curious whether he had admitted the damage, right? Yeah. Did, no, I think. Brushed it off. 
Yeah, so I have a quote in the book that I think is from Peppard who says, like, understanding can be as bad as death, which is how they viewed what they did. Like, they showed that the perceptron right. can't do something that um, people assumed that it would be able to do, and that understanding is what killed it. So I feel like in retrospect, their stance was, you know, we needed to have people understand it, and the consequences of that are what they are. Um, but I'm not sure, given, you know, the resurgence of deep learning today, if there'd be a sense of like, oh, but we should have still encouraged people to pursue it, the general area. Well, people did still pursue it. And that's why, I mean, people were always pursuing it. It wasn't winter for everybody, you know. So, uh, I, I, you know, on a related note, I, in my little, uh, so I run a little Discord group from like Patreon supporters from the podcast. Uh, and I was, you know, I don't know why I've been reminded of this consistently lately, uh, just who has priority on ideas, right? And we always have to give priority to some name. So, so examples of this, like the McCulloch Pitts, right? Uh, they always get that they ushered in the idea of neural networks, but this person in, in the, um, uh, in the discord group, you know, multiple times has said, but Rashevsky was before them and had the ideas before them. And this happens, you know, with, uh, Hopfield, right? John Hopfield always gets the credit for like Hopfield nets, but Stephen Grossberg even wrote down the equations before and it was called something different. And I cannot remember the name because I know Hopfield nets, right? And this is much the chagrin of, of Steve Grossberg, the cell assembly idea of Donald Hebb, who we always cite, right? Uh, before that was Konorsky, I believe, um, you know, who, and you know, who knows how many uh, people back propagation, uh, Hinton gets all the credit, right? And it was Paul Werbos who wrote the equations. I could go on, right? But it, and this is related to the idea of a story and needing a narrative, you know, for us to even make progress in science, right? But do you think it's important or damaging that we kind of idolize people and celebrate the people, even though the people that we celebrate, the ideas that we celebrate them for are probably predated by other ideas? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, in all of those cases, you know, and in all of science, uh, you know, the scientist is born into an existing uh, atmosphere of ideas. And, you know, even in the case of like Ryshevsky and McCulloch and Pitts, they were all at University of Chicago and they interacted, you know, that's like explicit interaction there. In other cases, I think with Hebb, I imagine he did not know about the, the previous work in a, in a similar direction. He, well, he, he, he credited a lot of previous people. Actually, he was one of the people who said, look, this isn't my idea and actually credited other people. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But yeah. do you know if he knew about... Um, I think he did not know about Konorsky. Konorsky, yeah. If that's the right name. Yeah. 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 I don't think he knew. There were some people he didn't know, some people he did. Yeah, because anyway, I think... Anyway, he was at least... Yeah. I thought Konorsky's book was like a year before his or something, so I'd be surprised if it could have gotten over to him uh, in that time. That, in those days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. A year isn't necessarily that long <laughs> if it's coming from a different country. Um, but yeah, anyway, so yeah, people are always born into existing ideas, and that's what they build on. And so... I don't think it's a problem to to tell a story about a person and how they came to their ideas. Um, and in the book, I tried to give a long trajectory that includes multiple people to show that it wasn't just like there was a eureka moment right. and nobody understood anything. And then after this person came around, now everything was understood. And that's the end of the story. You know, it's this back and forth between in the case of my book, it's a back and forth between uh, people on the biology side and bath and engineering and all of that. And so you can see that the idea doesn't just spring into mind in in one moment for most of these ideas. It's, it's born out of a lot of interactions. Um, so yeah, just having just the accurate understanding of, yes, 
individual people will make progress in a way where some people might make outsized progress compared to other people. And so we can choose to talk about those people um, while understanding that, uh, you know, they stood on the shoulders of giants and, and all of that, or also of not giants, just of regular people. Uh, but they got help from, from the environment they were in. And I would also say that, so, I mean, I had this issue when, um, doing the research of, you know, oh, yeah. starting with some landmark paper that I knew to be very yeah. important, looking at what it cites and looking at what cites that paper to kind of get these narratives, um, which Google Scholar makes very easy. That's an that's an impossible yeah yeah that's an impossible task by the way to oh boy you could really go down the rabbit yeah, hole yeah oh I, I went down many rabbit holes um but yeah but the modern tools does make that a lot easier than than it would have yeah, been yeah. Uh, very recently um but yeah in in doing that and trying to to see these connections I mean the in a lot of cases the name that you know about you know about because. The person who taught you heard about it and the person who taught them heard about it. And eventually the person who taught them knew the person <laughs> whose name it is directly. Like empirically, the people you've heard about had a big impact. That's how you came to hear about them. So whether it was originally their idea or not, you can't deny the fact that these are the people who people read and, and all of that. It's kind of like, you know, it, should we, you know, still be teaching really old books to high school students? Like, does it matter if anybody knows Shakespeare? Well, it matters because other people know Shakespeare and they might reference it in art and you won't get the reference if you were never taught Shakespeare. And so it's kind of like, at that point, it's not about the merit of the work. It's about the fact that it's culturally relevant. And this is the touchstone for it for the field. And so in that way, whether it's fair or not, that someone is the known person for an idea, it's at some point, it just becomes empirically true that they are the known person for the idea, and their thoughts on it are what have impacted the field more. So, you know, once someone becomes well-known, like a Heb or something like that, people are going to go back and read their work and, like, you know, pay more attention to their early ideas. They're going to read their later things more. They're just – if they won this lottery of, you know, who gets credit for an idea that was um, that was invented at the same time – then they are going to have more impact and they are therefore more relevant for the field for better or worse. It's interesting you use Shakespeare because he is um, known to have invented so many words, like so many actual words. Well, supposedly, I guess we'd have to go back and do the research. Who knows right? who invented those words? Who knows? <laughs> Shakespeare, Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so another thing that uh, is a recurring theme throughout the book uh, that I found interesting and, and and this is one of the a testament to the value of a book like this that it's all like condensed and so you can just see these themes uh, within a condensed space kind of repeated. The theme is re rediscovering old math and applying it to current problems. And you actually touched on this before when we were talking about Helmholtz. You said maybe it wasn't quite the right time uh, to for the math at that point because there wouldn't have been anything to do with it because the the right data didn't exist. What you know? I guess the the broad question is, what should we take from this? Uh, I don't know. Maybe you can uh, talk about a specific example, right? Where uh, there was math already fifty years before, and we're either just now you know using it, or I mean, I guess the classic example is Bayes' theorem, but no one knew knew about Bayes' law back then. So maybe is there a different uh, example from the book that you could highlight old math that then has been repurposed and rediscovered? Yeah, I mean, so. I guess maybe there are two possible options. I mean, with the Hopfield network and Ising models, that was something that was being studied in physics for a while before Hopfield kind of imported it to neuroscience. Um, and then also graph theory, 
the the origins of graph theory are very old um with euler um but uh they didn't get applied to neuroscience until i mean you could really say like 10 20 years ago maybe uh is when that field of network neuroscience started emerging and i i don't think that you know the idea that there has been a mathematical equation or you know a mathematical subfield around for a while and we didn't apply it into uh, to the brain until you know much later that doesn't bother me at all it doesn't make me think like oh we were really missing out on an opportunity right. Right. in part because of as i said kind of you need the the data and the field to be ready for that approach and also i mean in a sense there's no there's no like really correct mathematical equation for any, you know, problem in neuroscience. The way that they get used is that, you know, people have whatever background they do, if they're coming from physics or something like that, they have a way that they see the world and a set of equations that they use as tools to understand uh, the world, and they can see how those map onto the brain. Uh, but, you know, that doesn't mean that that was the only way to you know, write an equation for whatever problem you, you're thinking about. Um, so I, I don't think of it so much as like, oh, the right math was there all along and we like didn't make the connection. Um, it seems more like, uh, you know, it, it, it was used when it was useful, when someone could conceptualize how it would be useful. I mean, maybe in some cases there's kind of obvious things we should have been doing like dimensionality reduction in neural data. Although even that, uh, it's only somewhat recently that we've been able to record from a lot of neurons at once. So we didn't really have a dimensionality problem when you can only record from one neuron at a time. So, uh, you know, the, the data needs to be there for the mathematical tool to be useful. But we knew that the brain was made up of more than one neuron, right? Yes. So some of these things, it's like you, you, you in retrospect, oh, why, why didn't we prepare for that theoretically, right? Mm. I was going to ask you what, if you have a guess as to, you know, what model might be, what mathematical model might be out there right now that is not being appreciated, but in 50 years or so might be appreciated. But this is, before you answer, I, you know, as you're just based on what you're just saying, I realized, I mean, there's a lot of celebration in physics, uh, in neuroscience of physicists are coming to help, right? Uh, because they're bringing their mathematical models. Mm -hmm. And you talk in the book about the difference between physics and neuroscience. So maybe we'll touch on, on that in a second after this. Um, but the equations that are being used in neuroscience from the old days, there was not neuroscience. So, uh, you know, there was behavioral work and uh, physics and other sorts of things that, you know, so these equations have been basically imported. But now the equations, you could say, are uh, neuroscience equations. The math, there's new neuro math, right? Uh, to, you know, like, the, like deep learning theory, for instance. I, in one respect, you could call that neuro math, I suppose, in, in some sense. Um, so the equations now are 50 years from now, we'll look back and say, well, that was a neuroscience equation. So anyway, I'm wondering if you have any, uh, wild guesses about, you know, what's being underappreciated right now that you think might be rediscovered in 50 years or whatever. Yeah. Um, so I think extrapolating from what people are currently interested in, particularly with respect to like large scale neural recordings and all of that, um, I think... There will be, and this is already starting, so this isn't like such a wild guess. It's just like ten years. We'll this will help. Ten years. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think there will be um, uses of topology in neuroscience for understanding, like you know, neural manifolds and uh, what mm. is the low dimensional structure of neural activity that exists in the higher dimensional space of all neural activity. Um, so you see some of that happening now, and 
uh, I've just like personally encountered computational neuroscientists who think topology is cool. So I think that they want to have a reason to use it anyways. So that might drive some of it. I'm not, you know, I'm not in mathematics, so I don't know, but I thought topology was also just you know, a hot area in mathematics at the moment. Maybe I'm completely oh. off about that. I don't let know me, at all. Let me interrupt you because I think that what you just said actually speaks to something that's excited about exciting about neuroscience these days is if you just think something is cool, you can probably import it into neuroscience and make yeah. it useful. <laughs> There's a lot of different ways to use math in neuroscience. And even if it's not useful, you'll probably still get to be able to do it for a few years. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but uh yeah but the idea of why don't we prepare theoretically for the coming onslaught of data i'm sympathetic to that and personally that's part of why i'm interested in trying to study as kind of a model organism trained artificial neural networks because we're in a state of ignorance in some sense about how they work but we right. can do any kind of experiment we want on them so to me that's like yes we should just have neuroscientists who try to understand this so that we can understand what it understanding will be <laughs> like how do you come to yeah. it what kind of questions are you actually trying to uh ask and how can we use tools of neuroscience to answer those i think you know artificial neural networks are a great place to test those out and then you get the side benefit of maybe we understand the networks better which is relevant for ai um so i do think you know preparing is good but at the same time we're not always the best at anticipating what we're going to want to know or what the real challenges of the data will be until we have it. So you could put a lot of resources into preparing for something that doesn't matter. And the other risk of that is that, you know, you prepared for something, you get the data and that doesn't turn out to be the issue, but you're going to make it the issue regardless because that's what you prepared for. <laughs> so I think that's the risk of theory getting a little too far ahead of the data. But at the same time, people are making decisions about what kind of data to collect and what methods to develop, and those should be theory informed. So it's just about finding the right balance, I think, overall. I mean, you just described a lot of careers, forcing, forcing whatever's happening into whatever idea you had 20 years ago and making it conform to that story. Yeah. You, you'll get in trouble if you agree with that. So <laughs> I don't have to get in trouble anymore. <laughs> what What is the difference between physics approach and, uh, you know, neuroscience approach, modeling and math wise? Yeah, I I feel like to some extent, it's, you know, it's mostly a different uh, difference of content of topic area. Physics is trying to understand very basic elements of how the universe works, you know, that's you know a lot of what physics is. And neuroscientists are trying to understand the brain. But in either case, you might want to write an equation uh, to to codify what you know, and to make predictions. So on some level, it's just what are you predicting about? Now, of course, there's a sense, especially when you get to like, really down to the fundamentals of physics, that, you know, you're really describing reality, like you are <laughs> describing you know, exactly what's happening. And, you know, people even get into like philosophical discussions of like, is mathematics reality? Like, is that the basis of yeah, reality and real? all of that? Yeah. yeah. So w you don't have that in neuroscience, I don't think. <laughs> um, you more explicitly understand that your equ your equation is a very rough approximation to something that you're interested in. It's just a model to help you clarify your thinking and all of that. Um, so in some sense, uh, you know, that difference could actually be quite consequential because it it really kind of pushes you to maybe strive for different things it's certainly at the level of data collection that we have now in neuroscience you know you're not 
quibbling over like, oh, my model predicted the firing rate would be 3.15 on average, and it's 3.14. Like, what does this mean? You know, <laughs> whereas in physics, those kinds of differences can actually reveal something fundamental. <laughs> We're just so approximate already that that's not going to be, you know, the issue. But uh, yeah, you, the the use of mathematics feels in neuroscience maybe more like analogy whereas i don't i don't necessarily know how physicists think about what they're doing but maybe they feel like what they're describing is somehow more like fundamentally correct when they're they're using an equation i mean you also talk about uh, in neuroscience that we're studying something that has been subject to evolution for a long time and how that <laughs> makes a big difference i mean it's just a messy complex thing Th things built on top of other things barely functioning, and then that gets used for something else, and and then there's this whole recursion problem. I don't yeah. know if you want to speak to that. Well, yeah, it just means that physics is simpler in many ways. <laughs> don't you tell physicists that, though. <laughs> hey, yeah. why did so many of them leave physics to come to neuroscience? Because it's, it's all figured out? It's too easy? Because we got the hard problems. Yeah, exactly. Is physics too easy? Yeah. yeah. We the hard problems. And, uh, you know, experiments are pretty hard in physics. <laughs> <laughs> the 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 big relevant ones um but right. yeah no i mean studying an evolved system especially with the mindset that we sometimes kind of have to come in with for for simplification reasons that it's optimal in some way or that it would be the like the way that the brain is would be how someone would kind of design it from scratch you know uh that can make it difficult to understand because it is an evolved system that is potentially quite hacky in in many ways. And hacky. if you ever tried to like look at someone's code that isn't well documented, you know, <laughs> reverse engineering that is hard because it's like, oh, they were originally doing this thing and then they changed their mind and wanted to do something else. And so this function like does complete two completely different things. And uh, not that I'm talking about my own research code at all. <laughs> no, no, so I was going to say it's like looking at your own code. It's just the same thing. It's like a different person from two years ago. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's right. That was, that was one of your, uh, I think that was your answer to what has improved your life was to clean up your code, which yeah. is awesome. And I, I did do that. And I started a project with very nice code. And then research being what it is, I started having different questions and different goals. And so now that code is a big jumble of nonsense. But next time I start a project, it will also be clean again. <laughs> yeah. Other people's code. Speaking of code, uh, this is one of the chapters devoted in the book is devoted to the the coding question and information in the brain the brain as an information processor um how how the brain processes information you know what do spikes tell us about that and so on um here i'll read another i'll read another quote here i like reading the quotes this is i don't do this much on the show uh, just because scientists can spot a signal in the spikes doesn't mean it has meaning to the brain there are many reasons this might be one important one is that the brain is an information processing machine that is, it does not aim to merely reproduce messages sent along it, but rather to transform them, transform them into action for the animal. It's, it is performing computations on information, not just communicating it. And you spend a, a, a good deal of the chapter talking about Shannon uh, information and uh, the development of that. And that's where I got the Claude Shannon story as well. And in fact, I had a, uh, a previous guest offline. She would not let me include it in the released episode but i i think i asked her like what advice yeah what advice she might give to people studying uh, coming up in neuroscience and it was her advice was that shannon information is worthless in the study of the brain and then i was like oh that's such good advice though why can't i include it it's like i don't want i want to keep my career you know mm -hmm. so <laughs> what do you think of using shannon information as a way to understand brain information processing 
Yeah, I mean, I don't think I would say worthless. Um, well, I was <laughs> yeah. paraphrasing. Yeah, and yeah, probably yeah, yeah. exaggerating. Uh huh. Yeah. Um. Yeah, but it's the application of information theory to neuroscience and biology has been somewhat controversial, kind of from the start. And I, I go into this in the book of responses that people had almost immediately um, after uh, information theory came about, because it was applied to biology very quickly after it came about. That's not an example of, you know, where the math was sitting around for a while. You actually highlight that it was applied to biology a lot faster and more widespread than it was to computers, which is what it, you know, eventually led to. Yeah. Yeah, it took time for engineers to really make use of it. But yeah, it, it's it's tricky because, you know, part of uh, in the the section that you quoted, you know, the brain isn't just trying to communicate. And Shannon information theory is a, a theory about information communication and channels and how to best encode information to send it somewhere. It's not a theory of how do you use information, really. It's about sending it. Um, and that was obviously relevant, you know, to, to sending um, messages during World War II and all of that kind of thing, and just generally uh, telecommunications and, and all of that. It, it, you know, it's obviously a legitimate and interesting question of how do you best send information that's going to be relevant to society. Um, but that, you know, if you're trying to understand the functions of the brain and you focus too much on how the information is encoded in the sense of is it optimally encoded for for sending um you know you might just be led a bit astray because that's not the relevant question and especially you know there's some there's a view amongst people that uh amongst like neuroscientists there's a little bit of a push for like uh, we need to just think about the brain as something that produces outputs, like it produces behavior and, you know, talking in terms of information, while that can be useful to kind of get a handle on something, you know, in in terms of um, the processes that lead to the production of behavior, what matters is, you know, does this neuron make that neuron fire? And then what happens from there? And so you can maybe get caught up in quantifying the amount of information or anything like that when the question is just does this have an impact does this matter downstream yes or no um mm -hmm. so there, there as i kind of um said before about you know this this space in between sensory and motor uh when you're in that kind of cognitive space it can be hard to really um you know, without referencing information, it's hard to talk about what's happening there. <laughs> like, there's just, there's stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So you kind of have to talk about information. You have to ask what information is present in the brain. But ultimately, what matters is how the activity of neurons leads to, to downstream behaviors, ultimately. So it's just a matter of kind of, you know, using, as kind of with all of these mathematical models, it's a matter of using the inspiration to help you get a handle on something, but don't forget about what you're actually studying, which is a physical system, an evolved physical system that has to do adaptive things so that the organism survives. That's, you know, ultimately what's going on. I love that. And I think you referenced this in the book, Shannon himself, you know, quickly after when, you know, he, he uh, developed his information theory with entropy and, and whatnot. Uh, saw the how it caught wildfire, you know, just everyone was saying it's Shannon information, whatever field they were in. And he, he actually published a, a very brief essay. It's, for, it's worth reading, trying to throw a pail of water a little bit on that and saying, look, this is just one way to look at it. Don't apply this to all the fields out there. Yeah. And in a way, it's almost an example of like, you know, the warning that not everything is amenable to mathematical analysis immediately, you know, this isn't just because it's math, it doesn't mean that it's right and that it's going to solve all your problems. 
<laughs> that's not the, the take home you want for people who, <laughs> who read your book. That's that's the byline. Just because it's math, it's not going to solve your problems. I like that. Yeah, do you, you can do it, but <laughs> do you have uh, do you have thoughts on you know? There's this old now I don't know how many years old rate coding versus a timing coding, right? Mm-hmm. How information is coded and transmitted in the brain. Mm-hmm. Do you have? Um, I don't know if you want to just sort of summarize the. Uh, the quote-unquote debate, um, and then maybe whether you have thoughts on it. Yeah, so this is just the idea that, you know, the way that neurons represent information, if we're going to say it, um, is... You can, can use it broadly, right? Yeah, we don't have to... We don't need Shannon, Shannon information. Yeah, right. Generally. Um, but just that, you know, the relevant thing to look at for a neuron is the number of spikes it produces over time. And you can relate that to, you know, if you're looking in the visual system, you can relate that to visual stimuli that exist in the world. Um, and so that's the rate coding idea that you, you care about the number of spikes that a neuron produces. Temporal coding would say something like, maybe you care about the time in between two spikes or the time of a spike relative to some other event, um, that that's where the information exists, so to speak. Uh, and so, yeah, this has been, you know, again, since information theory came about, people were trying to quantify how much information the uh, brain area has. But to apply Shannon's theory, you need to know what the neural code is. You need to know what counts as a symbol in the neural code. And there were different ways of defining this that led to like vastly different estimations of how much information, you know, a given brain area had. Um, and so those choices are, you know, the number of spikes could be um, a symbol in the code, the time between spikes could be a symbol in a code, you can come up with other possible symbols in, in the code to do this calculation. And really, I mean, rate coding has been much more dominant. It's been, you know, and in some sense, it's been, you know, proven to the extent that neurons do change their firing rate when the animal is experiencing different conditions, like we can say that much at least. Um, but also there have been occasions where uh, a timing-based code has also shown to been mm-hmm. shown to carry information about um, the same kind of stimuli. So uh, I think it's just a matter of, you know, what system are you studying? What question are you asking about that system? It could be a combination of both. I mean, again, there's no there's no reason to assume this crazy evolved system has a single neural code or it, it also the the question of like the neural code really does feel to me a little bit like, you know, you're really thinking about a designer that says like this is where the information is. Whereas, you know, if the rate of neurons and their timing changes how a downstream neuron fires and therefore changes behavior, then it matters. And mm-hmm. so it's not going to be so clear that like the rates are what matters and the timing is irrelevant. If it can impact something else, if the timing of the spikes impacts something somewhere else in the brain, then it could be relevant. So uh, it's all going to depend on on the specifics of the question as to, you know, which code is most in use. Yeah. I mean, there are reasons also to uh, think that both would be useful. You know, for instance, a rate code, you might not want to transmit, I'll say information, um, unless there's a certain amount of confidence, you know, that it is whatever, Jennifer Aniston or something. And, you know, so you need uh, a lot of spikes uh, in a row uh, in a short period of time, right, to get over some threshold. However, uh, an efficient coding hypothesis, something like Barlow, which you describe in the book, Barlow's efficient coding uh, hypothesis, you know, might suggest, and this goes back to the designer idea, which evolution is not a designer, but um, if you were as efficient as possible to uh, allow as many possible types of information to be transmitted, 
then you would want an inner spike, uh, a timing code, an inner spike interval code, because you there's a lot more information uh, available to transmit through that. So, but this is a you know still a dominant. And I think like Randy Gallistol, uh argues that latter point that you would you would really want uh, a a more a higher capacity code is a you know timing code allows for a higher capacity of information processing. Um, so this is still a debate that's still going on. It's not it hasn't gone away at all. Yeah, for sure. No, no, no. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about graph theory and network neuroscience, which you devote a chapter to. Let me see. It's chapter nine, actually, from structure to function. Uh, you know, I, I have a quote here. I'm, I'll read a quote. The language of graph theory offers a way to talk about neural networks that cuts away much of the detail. At the same time, its tools find features of neural structure that are near impossible to see without. These features of the structure, some, some scientists now believe, can inspire new thoughts on the function of the nervous system. Um, so this is kind of a controversial uh, idea, right? That um, you know we could say something about function just from well, modern these days, it's kind of a controversial idea that you could say something or deduce some uh, function just from structure. Uh, what what say you? Yeah. Um, so in some ways, you know, the the structure function relationship is kind of foundational to neuroscience and to biology generally. There's a sense that like we're just kind of going to look at physically what the structures in the body are and try to guess what they could be used for. You know, like you look at the heart and like blood's coming out of it. It's like, okay, I guess that's the thing that makes sure blood gets everywhere. Um, so, you know, it can work to some extent um, to just look at uh, the structure of, of something. But uh, yeah, I mean, there there are, aside from the, the most basic um, kind of structure function relationships, for example, um, Ramoni Cajal, you know, finding that neurons tend to have little bits that we now know are like dendrites that pick up signal and a long bit that's an axon that sends the signal on. That was an example of looking at a structure and kind of deducing a function from it. But other than that... <laughs> well, he, he, he actually guessed the right, mostly guessed the right direction of uh, signal transport yeah. down the axon and dendrites uh, accepting it, which... Just by looking, just by looking at the at the structure, like you said, just from his yeah. drawings, essentially, which yeah. is pretty amazing. And so, with that, there was kind of, you know, in some sense, it formed the basis of how we believed we would understand the brain. It's like, let's mm. get the structure, let's see what different neuron types look like, let's see how they connect to each other, let's see what different brain regions look like and where they are and all of that. Um, but it does seem like in uh, in modern times, it's perhaps acknowledge that that's not so easy um, to just look at at the structure. And uh, I mean, there are a lot of efforts lately to get connectome data from different species mm -hmm. and at different scales and all of that. So you could argue maybe there's like, you know, people who still really buy into the structure will tell us the function. But you could also just say that we need to know the structure to fully understand the function, but the structure alone is not going to tell us the function. Because once you move off the scale of a neuron or two or three, um, then getting, getting, deducing the, the function, uh, is very difficult. But graph theory still gives you a way to talk about structure, at least. It doesn't say necessarily that you can look mm. at the structure and know the function, but at least gives you different ways of describing structure than were perhaps stereotypically used in neuroscience. Well, fun function's kind of built into graph theory as well, in the, in a sense, right? Um, because, it, because of the, depending on how you set it up, but uh, it's not like you're just building an inert lattice when you're, you know, creating a network with graph theory. The graph does stuff. Um, yeah, especially if, so 
actually kind of similar to information theory. It's putting a lot of emphasis on communication and the idea that where you have nodes, information will flow between those brain regions or those neurons or something like that. Um, and so, yeah, in that sense, there's there's kind of a built-in sense of function, If especially in the case of, of the brain. You're kind of thinking about it as channels for communication to occur through. That's what the edges in the graph are and the, you know, the nodes are the different brain regions. So I would say that in some sense, yes, it is. It's building in some belief about what the connections are for. I have this crazy backward idea that it's almost a challenge to, you know, so I wonder what network neuroscience and connectomics people think of this modern perspective of, well, actually it doesn't matter at all, right? Structure doesn't matter at all. It's about function. And that's, that has the primary explanatory role as function and structure is a very secondary thing. And I kind of take that <laughs> as a a great challenge, right? Wouldn't it be interesting to be able to deduce function from structure? I mean, maybe it's not possible, right? But but gosh, what a challenge uh, for someone to undertake. Yeah, I mean, it, I'm yeah, I'm struggling to say if it would ever really be possible, even right. Um, right. Like in theory. Well, no. Well, no. I mean, of course, it's not possible to just look at three nodes mm, and yeah. say something about right. But but in theory, so like one extreme would be you kind of have all of the physical information about the neurons and how they connect, and you just build that in a model and then you can look at the activity it produces and then say something about the function. Um, But that's just kind of studying the circuit itself then, uh, which is what the human brain project is criticized for. Um, But yeah, the idea that you could really just kind of like have a mathematical operation that you apply to a graph and it'll tell you the function of the, that set of neurons that feels not possible to me is what I would say. Um, but at the same time, I'm not, I'm not sympathetic to the idea that structure doesn't matter and we only care about the function. Um, just because that doesn't, that, that feels a little bit like it stops being neuroscience to me. Like you could say like no physical Mm -hmm. detail of the brain matters. We just want to know like the mind, quote unquote, we want to understand, um, how inputs, you know, the relationship between inputs and outputs, but we don't care about how the brain creates that relationship. Um, but if you're doing neuroscience, and especially like what got me interested in neuroscience was the idea that you could connect neurons in a certain way such that they would produce a function. So uh, if you really don't care at all about structure, you might not be doing neuroscience, I think. Mm. You know, I, I really have enjoyed uh, the past couple of years of thinking of things like structure uh, as constraint. And that sounds like oh, that makes structure boring, but I've elevated constraint in my mind as as in importance uh, because it's through the it's only through the constraints that things like information processing can flow, right? And so the constraints really do shape uh, how the information, uh, let's say the information <laughs> again, how signals are, you know, flow essentially. So I think that, that might be the way to go is, is thinking about it in terms not of some positive when you have, the structure laid out this way, it will create the function, but as an important player, as a constraint uh, on on how that can be carried out. Yeah. And again, you know, neuroscience being a subfield of biology, there could be interesting developmental reasons why you have to have certain structural constraints. Like maybe you couldn't build um, a network with a certain, you know, structure to it based on how the brain develops and, and that kind of thing. So yeah, it, you can care about 
abstract ideas of function and even somewhat abstract ideas about structure, maybe if you're just interested in information processing more generally and artificial intelligence and that kind of thing. But if you're interested in the brain and neuroscience as a field of biology that it is, then yeah, it just seems like you'd be interested in, in the actual structure and how, how the function arises from that. Speaking of idolizing people, Eve Martyr. <laughs> I think a lot of people rightly probably idolize her, her work and, mm-hmm. you know, uh, her as a scientist. What I want to ask you is, you know, how has Martyr's work on the lobster, what is it, somatoganglion cells? Am I saying that right? I'm not sure. The, the gut lobster networks and how they are basically vastly multiply realizable. The function is multiply realizable uh, among a pretty simple set of known connections among neurons. You can probably more elegantly uh, describe that than I just did, but um, you, you talk, you, you give that story in the book and talk about her work. H- how has that affected you know, your own uh, thinking about brains and minds, and how, how should it affect our thinking about brains and minds? Well, I think for one, it's just a great example of the utility of mathematical models, because when you build those models and you see how this like by the standards of biology and neuroscience, a rather stereotyped set of neurons with a rather stereotyped set of connections, um, how really the exact parameter that regime that you're in matters. <laughs> like if you change the connection strength mm. between certain neurons by a little bit or through neuromodulation, change some of the properties of the network, it, it produces a different function. It produces dif- different rhythmic outputs. Um, and so it just really shows that the quantifying things matters. You can't just say that neuron's connected to that neuron, and therefore I can deduce the function because it's so reliant on the exact details of of all of that. Um, and then uh, another just interesting outcome of that kind of work is a kind of a, a cautionary tale about averaging across, certainly across different species, but even across different individual organisms in in a species. Because um, part of what she shows is that you know this. This network needs to produce these rhythmic outputs for the gut, and you can produce the correct rhythmic output many different ways. This network can be wired up in different ways and still get the right function done for the animal. Mm-hmm. Um, and it will vary between individuals um, of the species. And so, you know, now we just assume, okay, if all of these animals are doing the same behavior, they're using the same you know, neural activity and neural structures to do it. So we can collapse across these different uh, individuals that we're studying. We can even collapse across slightly different species and, and all of that. Um, but if, if you know, her work is more generally true, which it seems like there's good reason to Why believe not? that it is, yeah, yeah uh, then you can really lead yourself astray by averaging because you can have systems that are producing the same output, but you know, potentially with kind of opposite mechanisms, so to speak. And the average of those different individuals won't actually work to produce the right output. Uh, and so if your model is based on averages, you might be trying to solve an impossible problem, even though you know, like, well, I know the animal is producing this output, and I know this is the neural activity. But if you're just piecing it together the wrong way, because you're averaging, then then you're in trouble. Yeah, Mark Mark Humphreys talks about this. I just I heard uh, just the other day, it was about, it was a lecture on Russian history. Uh, and he, he was, he was uh, and I, I think that this is an old idea. I don't think that he invented it. But if your head is in the refrigerator, and your feet are in the oven, on average, you're just the right temperature. Yeah. And the, so this is, <laughs> this is a, the cautionary tale. I mean, the martyr work too, you you said, you know, presumably it kind of scales up to, uh, you know, to other areas. And 
one can imagine because the, the somatosensory, somatogastric system of the lobster is really a simple structure. So if you have that much uh, diversity, that much, I don't say, people have, people mean different things by multiple realizability, but that much um, array of being able to implement a function function with different uh, implementational um, implementation, uh, you know, imagine it scaling up to the, you know, the complexity of some of our higher cognitive functions and how those get done. I mean, it's just mind blowing. Sorry, I just, uh, no pun intended. But, uh, you know, this, I have this weird, you know, none of, when you kind of like imagine these things like in your head and you have a visual image, the brain is just, it seems like such right now uh, in my head, it's, it's such a beautiful solution to just fit any function it needs to fit, right? It's like evolution's best solution and really fucking good solution to just fit anything it needs to. Yeah, I think the the one of the other interesting kind of takeaways from Eve's work, though, is that mm. you can get at the fact that different systems are kind of coming to the same conclusion in different ways um, just by pushing the system to certain extremes. So in in her case, it's like changing the temperature within yeah. the normal range of the lobster's temperature. Two different systems, the two different animals can produce the same outputs using different connectivity. But once you push it out of that range, then they start to kind of break down in unique ways based on the different connectivity. And so that's like a little bit reassuring that it's not that, you know, there's really no sign that the underlying uh, structure is right. different. You can probe um differences and you know in kind of psychophysics and and psychology and stuff people study the way that people make errors as a more interesting way to get at um function and uh you know potentially try to um make guesses about the underlying structure because errors kind of tell you there's there's more ways to be wrong uh than there is to be right in in most tasks so errors can be a little bit more revealing or you know in the case of the lobster pushing it out of uh its normal operating regime is a little bit more interesting for for revealing what's going on yeah that that's interesting i mean you know another another way to think about it, just going back to constraint is that the environment imposes its own constraints sort of of how the the system operates so yay constraints again i say <laughs> yeah all right, so uh, drum roll. We need a drum roll. Maybe I'll add a drum roll in the editing here. The last chapter in your book, um, you close on talking about unified theories uh, of the brain. So uh, speaking of physics, there, right now there's a lot of hoopla in the physics world about having a, what are the theories? Theories of everything, right? Is kind of popular among all the physics uh, big wigs these days. <laughs> I you think know, it's we... been that way for a while, is my understanding. Physics is long, so I don't know what these days means. <laughs> well, of course you'd know. Of course you'd know. What what kind of person was Newton, Grace? So, so we actually we know a lot about that. But um, at least you know I don't know. I I see it more in the media these days. Anyway. Mm, okay. Uh, um, it's and and there's a, there's backlash also mm -hmm. from um, Sabine Hofstadter. Hof, yeah. I don't know. Um, has you know talked about how ridiculous it is that we need a, a theory of everything. Mm -hmm. So you, you cover three, the three major, three of the major theories of, of uh, unified theories of the brain, integrated information theory, uh, the thousand brains theory from Jeff Hawkins, which I was surprised that that was included as one of them, and free energy principle, mm -hmm. which I was not surprised uh, that was included. Um, you know what? I have one more quote. I'll read this quote from the book. Sociologist, um, and this is a quote and a quote, sociologist Murray S. Davis offered a reflection on theories in his 1971 article entitled, That's Interesting. In it, he said, 
It has long been thought that a theorist is considered great because his theories are true, but this is false. A theorist is considered great not because his, or her, I'll add her, uh, theories are true, but because they are interesting. In fact, the truth of a theory has very little to do with its impact, for a theory can continue to be found interesting even though its truth is disputed, even refuted. And then you go on to say grand unified theories of the brains of grand unified theories of the brain, whatever their truth may be, are surely interesting. So this is a great you know way to end your book. So, but why did you choose those uh, three theories to illustrate, and, and do you have a favorite among those? Yeah. So this this was a difficult chapter to write. I oh. kind of <laughs> was this the most difficult. In some ways, yes, in terms of, you know, wanting to give an accurate perception of how the field views these and, and how people who are supporters of it view them and, and all of that. So kind of socially the most difficult chapter to write. I see. Um, I, I had it in the book proposal because it, it's definitely an area where physics has influenced the study of the brain because it's kind of imported. This idea of you can come up with a grand unified theory is, is kind of imported from physics. Um, and I remember the editor, when he was like assessing my book proposal, like particularly noted like, oh, that seems like a fun way to end the book. And then so I knew like, like I knew I was like, I can't, I can't cut it. I have to actually <laughs> do this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, it, it took me a while to decide which ones to include and to kind of crowdsource what options there even were for like what people consider grand unified theories and, and all of that. And to be honest, the IIT uh, the integrated information theory is like, in some sense, not a grand unified theory of the brain because right. it's mainly about consciousness in consciousness, particular, yeah. but consciousness is like so relevant for some people's understanding of the brain and their interest in the brain at all that it feels like it is trying to encompass a lot, um, by coming up with a theory of that. Um, so yeah, it was, it was very hard and part of, my decision was based kind of again on this notion, not necessarily of like what's the best, but what has been most impactful. Uh, like what have people talked about that felt like it was relevant to explain and contextualize the things that people were maybe already slightly aware of or might hear about more broadly. Um, this seemed like an opportunity to kind of, yeah, provide more information in those areas, which is part of the decision, um, for how I decided which ones to cover. It is. I, I just realized, as you're saying, talking about integrated information theory, that um, Jeff Hawkins and Thousands Brain Theory, Thousand Brains Theory, he's one of those people who is um, against studying consciousness, basically because there's a lot more things to worry about. I mean, he talks about it in his book, um, which I've skimmed already because it's basically a summary of his recent papers. Uh, but Free Energy Principle does uh, talk, you know, does deal more with consciousness as well. It, can I give you a challenge? What if you, what if I made you in one sentence, uh, each of, summarized each of those uh, take-homes? <laughs> you just shrugged. <laughs> I just saw your whole body go like limp a little bit. Like, oh no. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, it's an impossible task, I know. Mm -hmm. But but just to give listeners um, an idea, just a, a taste. And, you know, th when they read the book, they can dive deeper into all three of these ideas. So just like summarize what the ideas are. For each yeah, kind of um, mm -hmm. the yeah overarching principle behind each idea. Yeah. So free energy principle, a big focus of it is this idea of wanting to essentially minimize surprise and that that could drive a lot of 
um, how the perceptual system is organized and how actions are uh, chosen and all kinds of other things as well, because uh, it can be applied kind of on multiple scales. So that would be the free energy principle. Nice. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> thanks. Um, integrated information theory says that consciousness arises when information is integrated in a certain way. So it focuses kind of on the the, the structures basically of um, you know, pathways for information to, to interact with, um, other sources of information. And if you have the right structure, it says that consciousness, which, uh, is like a scalar value of some sort, you know, you can have a little bit or a lot, Five. but it, it tells you, yeah, how much consciousness you'll get based on how much information is integrated. And then thousand brains, um, which is kind of the new name for, um, uh, Hawkins, uh, approach, uh, that one is a little bit harder to explain succinctly just because it pulls from kind of other concepts in neuroscience about um, mm. how uh, like space is represented in the brain and that if you can get a good uh, – I guess maybe one simple way to put it is kind of if you can get a good spatial representation of something, you can do a lot with that is maybe what I would say, which is how it can be related to a lot of different topic areas. And the, the thousands part of that uh, t phrase, thousand brains, is just that uh, we basically have tons and tons of copies of all sorts of objects in our head with those spatial relations and, and getting that, that way we can get a grasp of different sizes of things. And you know, the coffee cup is the, famous, is, is the example that he uses. Yeah. Do you, uh, do you have a favorite, not just among those, but do you have, and you don't even have to bite here, but do you have like a grand unified theory of the brain that you lean toward? I am in the camp, which I, I talk about in the book, of people who don't really believe that there will be a grand unified theory of the brain. Uh, so that was also kind of what made <laughs> it hard to write the chapter. But I, I <laughs> yeah, did yeah. think it was important to both cover the fact that these exist and they are mathematical theories, the ones, you know, that I'm, I'm covering. There's a computational mathematical element to it. Um, so both that these exist, but also I, I tried to get across the fact that there actually is a lot of skepticism from people in the field um, about them, even though they seem like they could, you know, solve everything. Uh, just a lot of, you know, everyday neuroscientists don't uh, don't feel that enthusiasm about them. That's right. Yeah. So you've been blogging for quite some time. You've had a successful uh, blog. And uh, so you know how to t tell a story and you know how and that comes through in the book. But is there anything through the writing process, even with the book, but also blogging that has changed the way or helped develop the way you make even, you know, like presentations or write research papers or write grants like in your day-to-day uh, -day research? Has it affected that at all? Yeah, for sure. I think I've just developed a lot of like sympathy for the reader because when you uh, well, something I don't worry about on the podcast is sympathy for the listener. So, so you're, I don't know what you're you're speaking to emptiness here, but go uh -huh, ahead. Yeah. Um no, cuz when you're writing popular science, um it's supposed to be fun. Like someone is purchasing this book or, you know, whatever, even listening to a podcast or um yep. visiting a website, whatever it is. It, they're probably doing it kind of in their off time. Uh, and so I feel like you should, you know, provide them a pleasant experience. And like, yes, you want to get certain information across, but that it should be the case that if you put in enough effort that you can get it across in a way where it's kind of consistently still fun 
to to read. Uh, and there isn't just like, a, you know, several pages straight of just like, here's the background knowledge I'm just going to dump on you so that you can understand other stuff I want to tell you. Like every part of it should hopefully be fun and uh, shouldn't be like so challenging that they have to reread the same thing like three times or five times or whatever. And so I think that that's very important for popular science because it is recreational for most people. But then it's like, well, why shouldn't people also not be angry when they're reading your scientific paper? <laughs> like, that should yeah. also be like a smooth process for them, um, especially if you want them to keep going. It's like, yes, technically you have to put in more details and you have to be more concrete in a way that does make pleasant writing challenging because you just have to like dump numbers and, and very basic, you know, things about the methods on them. Um, and there's always a lot of caveats, you know. Um, but still, Ideally, you just kind of have it flow in a way that even though you're doing all of that, it's still not so unpleasant because like we're just people choosing how to spend our time. And, uh, you know, you want to make it pleasant for people and it'll make them want to read your stuff more and it'll make them understand it. And so they can build on it uh, if they can't understand it or if it just would take them three weeks to understand it, then they're probably not going to do it because everybody's busy. What do you think, though, about. I, th I think it's uh, Newton's Principia, and there are other exa examples of this that aren't coming to mind, where the author intentionally is obtuse, like writes sometimes even in code so that people won't scoop them, and that makes, well, and for whatever various reasons, mm -hmm. and that makes for some extremely unpleasant uh, time spent trying to decipher what was meant. Um, why is that? Why is that a thing? I can't think of a good reason to do that that doesn't kind of make it seem like the person has a personality disorder. Um. <laughs> I mean, and we're in science, so that's pretty, uh -huh. we're all, we're all interesting. We're all, uh, let's say interesting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I, I mean, if you are famous, then people will spend that time on your cryptic text, but I don't know that you're going to get famous by writing cryptic texts. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think it's, it's kind of rude. <laughs> like, why are you writing if you don't want people to understand it? <laughs> I, get, I get really upset, even in a research mm -hmm. paper, like, yeah. I, it, why are you writing? I mean, why why are you making this so difficult? Anyway, I mean, I know I'm not that bright, but you got to meet me halfway, you know? That's yeah. why. And and also, scientists, you know, you've probably been working on your project for like two years straight. And so you're really lacking an outside perspective of someone who's going to swoop in, you know, because they saw it on Twitter and they just open it in a tab. And then it's just like, whoa, I don't know what's happening here. Like, you really yeah. have to think about the context in which people are coming to your work and what it will be like for them. I think that is a uh, amazing skill to develop and really difficult, and you've done it really well. So thank you, and congrats, and uh, uh, just thanks for talking with me. Thank you so much. This is really fun. Brain Inspired is a production of me and you. I don't do advertisements. You can support the show through Patreon for a trifling amount and get access to the full versions of all the episodes, plus bonus episodes that focus more on the cultural side but still have science. Go to braininspired.co and find the red Patreon button there. To get in touch with me, email paul at braininspired.co. The music you hear is by The New Year. Find them at thenewyear.net. Thank you for your support. See you next time. The stairs.